Looking for a graduation gift to inform, inspire, and encourage? When you give a subscription to Christianity Today, you're giving redemptive, relevant news and thoughtful balanced dialogue about the church, current issues, and public theology. Visit orderct.com slash graduate gifts to get a discounted student subscription for the graduates in your life. Starting at only $2 per month, this gift will engage and grow their faith throughout the year. Click the link in the show notes or visit orderct.com slash graduate gifts to order now. I'm having my first performance review and I'm completely fixated on how did I perform, right? And what, what, where did I, you know, succeed, but also where did I not measure up? And my boss at the time, um, older white male, and he's going over the, the year with me and basically, you know, it's all good, but I'm waiting, you know, for the other shoe to drop. And finally he gets to the constructive feedback mode and he says, you know, Michelle, here's something I'm trying to figure out. So it seems to me that the white people in our movement absolutely adore you. But some of the black people are struggling with you. Do you have any idea why that might be? This is Where You're From, an origin story podcast at the intersection of faith and culture that digs into the influences and experiences that shape who we are today. Join us as we gain insight into the Bible's wisdom for all, regardless of where we're from. Hey, y'all, this is Rasul Berry. Thanks for joining me on Where You're From. This week, I want to share my conversation with Michelle Sanchez. Michelle is an author, ministry leader, and most recently served as the executive minister of Make and Deepen Disciples for the Evangelical Covenant Church. She is passionate about discipleship, especially as it relates to issues of race. And she writes and teaches about tough topics with wisdom, insight, and grace. You can find out more about Michelle by clicking the links in the show notes or by visiting whereyoufrom.org. That's where, Y-A, from, dot O-R-G. Please join me as I ask Michelle Sanchez, where you're from. So I am both Caribbean American and African American. Mm. It was only in time that I came to understand that that is impactful in how one develops and sees the world. Uh, but yeah, my grandfather was from the Virgin Islands and Antigua, and Ooh. he made the move uh, when he came of age uh, to New York. And so my parents actually met in New York. They grew up across the street from each other in the Bronx, in the South Bronx. Uh, and so my, my dad is kind of up from slavery, up from the South, traditional black kind of background in that way. And then my mom is like growing up in a traditional Caribbean household. They met and I was the result. Wow. In the South Bronx, South, South Bronx. Yes, yes, yes. And oh, here's the other thing. They are from the South Bronx. I was born in the South Bronx. And I ended up going back to New York City later for school and whatnot. But in between, they moved out to Long Island. Mm. And so in the middle there, you know, I, I had a big shift in, yeah. in culture and life experience. So like when you mentioned the Southern, you know, African-American dynamic and then the Afro-Caribbean experience, what was that like having both of those influences shape you growing up? I actually did not fully realize the impact that that would have on me until later, like how I've been shaped in that way. Mm. But one thing about Caribbean culture, it is very kind of disciplined um, in many ways. Uh, it's, it can be proper, you know, especially places formed by the British mm. culture. Yeah. And, you know, my grandfather came over with this hardworking immigrant kind of mindset and had not experienced, you know, a lot of the discrimination necessarily that as it was practiced, you know, in the in the States for hundreds of years in, in the same way, right? And so uh, he came in a sense with a little bit less trauma <laughs> 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 to the States, uh, lots of discipline and a, and a huge work ethic. He started a record shop 
And mm. let me tell you, this was the thing to do. My, my grandfather was happening. So <laughs> he, um, unfortunately, his, his wife died kind of young. Um, and, but then he became a ladies man and he had mm. this record shop. He loved to smoke. He loved to drink. Oh my goodness. Jesus came later. Let me just tell you, <laughs> but he was an incredible man. But on my dad's side, there were a lot more challenges. Um, you know, not mm. as much money. Uh, I would, I would describe it as a lot more kind of post-traumatic slave syndrome coming mm. up from, you know, the South and the traditional kind of black experience. And so it was a weird combination. I probably was more shaped by my mom than anything else. Mm. Okay. So you just dropped a big post-traumatic <laughs> tra- <laughs> slave syndrome, right? Like that's a, that, and you just kind of said it casually, like that's just something we all know. Break oh, right. that down for us. That sounds heavy. Uh, I did not create that phrase. I don't know. Someone else did, and I don't remember. There might even be a book. But the idea of post-traumatic slave syndrome, essentially it's saying there are ongoing impacts in the Black community that is descended from slavery that continue on to this day. We had slavery for hundreds of years. Uh, Being liberated suddenly does not just fix all of that. There are ongoing impacts. Uh, And someone came up with that pithy phrase post-traumatic slave syndrome. And in hindsight, like, are there ways in which you think about seeing that type of post-traumatic slave syndrome or, you know, emerge in among your parents? Absolutely. I saw it more clearly later. But for example, on my mom's side, you know, she had many siblings and my father had many siblings. If you look at my mom's side and how they all kind of developed in life, you will see, you know, uh, college. Uh, they were they all were very successful in many ways to this day, uh, led thriving families. And so there's like many stories of success on mom's side, mm-hmm. whereas on my dad's side, it is not the same story. And so you can see kind of a, a stronger impact mm-hmm. of this legacy of what's happened to Black people in America mm-hmm. on the side where all the folks are from America. Wow. Okay. So you you see these groups come together in your own, you know, DNA. Yes. yes. But then you talk about moving from the South Bronx where you were where they met and where you were born to Long Island, right? Yeah. So tell us a little bit about the difference for those that are not familiar with those places of just what that means for you as an environment and as a young person. Well, uh Traditionally, you know, when folks think of the South Bronx, uh, they think of a place that's mostly black and brown. Uh, They think of a place that is troubled. It is under-resourced compared to other places, right? And so, you know, the schools, for example, may uh, be underperforming because they are under-resourced. Whereas Long Island, and Long Island's a big place, but typically, you know, it is marked by predominantly white uh, community. And certainly middle class to upper middle class in general, many more resources, particularly in the schools. And that is probably the biggest impact on my life is that because I grew up on Long Island in this predominantly white uh, area, my whole life was shaped by the fact I had a great education. You know, I learned to assimilate very well into the white community and uh, succeed uh, in that context. And so that explains a lot of what happened later. I'll Mm. I'll just say that. Oh, and let me say this, Russell, this is very important. My parents, the only way they were able to even move out to Long Island in the first place was because of a special program for like, I think it was maybe low income housing uh, program or low income mortgage, you know, program. And so they got in through something special, (laughs) you know, not because they had it in themselves or their own resources to move to Long Island. Okay, so how old are you when you move into to Long Island? Very young. Like I don't remember okay. uh, the South Bronx, so uh, okay. two or under. <laughs> okay, so this was like the world for you, right? Yes, yes. So, so you're there, and what do you remember about your first impressions of Long Island? One of my earliest memories was that I was never allowed to have a birthday party, hmm. okay? And I was little, I did not understand this. I was constantly going to my friends' birthday parties. And when I say my friends, I'm talking about predominantly white kids who were living in more affluent areas. 
my uh, enclave was actually a mostly black enclave, but in the midst of this predominantly white, wealthy enclave. Okay. So I constantly went to their birthday parties and when was my birthday, you know, my, my parents would say, oh, you know, let's do something else because we're not really sure that your friend's parents mm-hmm. would want to, you know, come here. And that, that is one of my earliest memories mm-hmm. of being on Long Island. Like, what's wrong mm-hmm. with our house? What's wrong with our community? I don't understand why they wouldn't want to come here. So, and let me say this, when I got older, I did have birthday parties, but that is one of my earliest memories. Yeah. So, it kind of is this thing of like, oh, I don't, that's confusing, but I'm also, it's not a good feeling of just knowing like, okay, I can't have what they're doing. Yeah. So, you have that experience, but then you also, you know, had this word that you use and that you've written about Oreo. Explain that in how, in what context that we're not talking about yes. cookies here. Yeah, <laughs> no, we're not. <laughs> so when I grew up, I did well in school. And because of that, uh, some within the black community resented me. I did not understand why. I could not grasp, you know, if we are kind of struggling as a people, shouldn't we be cheerleading for one another, you know, right. cheering each other on as we do well. But I experienced the opposite very much. Mm-hmm. Like as I did uh, better and better in school, I was, you know, kind of bullied more and more mm-hmm. and ostracized more and more by the black community. <laughs> mm-hmm. And yeah, called an Oreo cookie, black on the outside, white on the inside. And it, let me tell you, traumatized me so badly, shaped me in so many ways you know, even to this day that I experienced that. Mm. And so, again, I, I think it, it, it's a kind of twisted consequence of racism because somehow being successful and being white are equated to each other. Mm. And sometimes then you have this strange dynamic. Well, if you're successful, you're acting white and you're not accepted here. Well, how twisted is that? <laughs> right. Mm. Yeah. But I don't blame people. Right. I blame racism. Yeah. And I, I can echo having that same experience, you know, using vocabulary or a certain accent. Oh, you, you're talking white. You sound yes. like you're yes. seeing these things. And it's kind of this aspect of internalized. Yeah messaging that you wrote about in your book that we we know about, even with the uh, famous doll experiment that Dr. Kenneth Clark did, which, you know, tell us about that. Because I feel like yeah. it kind of gives us a little bit of a insight into what might be going on there in this otherwise very confusing moment and experience. So, the doll experiment, uh, this was an experiment that was done when the Supreme Court was hearing a case about whether or not we should desegregate our schools. Right. And so one of the things that was brought to the attention of the court was that when little children were given dolls, a choice of a black doll or a white doll, they would choose the white doll. Pretty much, you know, most of the children, most of the time, it was very clear that they would prefer uh, the white doll to the black doll to play with. This includes black children. And then when they were asked to use words, you know, to describe the dolls or suggested words, which of these dolls is the is the bad one? Most of them would pick the black doll. Mm-hmm. Which of these dolls is the ugly one, right? Even the black children would pick the black doll, right? And so it is showing how racism impacts everyone and causes even, you know, people of African descent to internalize a sense of self-hatred in very distorted ways, which is not something that promotes flourishing in right. life, as you can imagine. Right. So you have these categories that are out there in the atmosphere that are, you know, um, subtly and not so subtly presented as what the roles are, which is also interesting because the importance of representation comes out of that too. And that there were some other shows that showed a wider range of the Black experience that seemed to particularly have a, a, a point of connection with you. Tell us about that. Oh, yes. So the show that I grew up absolutely loving was The Cosby Show. And my idol in life was Claire Huxtable. I absolutely worship this lady. I mean, I worship God, but then second to God was Claire Huxtable. Uh, because, you know, she was just the epitome of, you know, work hard, 
you know, and you will succeed in life. Everything will work out for you. You can be a, a lawyer. You can have a doctor husband, five children. One of them's at Princeton, you know, uh, your, your professional. Oh, and your hair and your makeup always look Flawless. great. Flawless. <laughs> yeah. So like, I mean, I just, this show, you forgot they were black, you know, mm. watching the Cosby show and they didn't talk about race much. Mm. And it was just like, work hard and you can be like mm. Clear Huxtable. So I made that my goal in life. I mean, there are, <laughs> that's not a bad role model to, no. to, you know what I mean? She was funny. She was sharp. All the things, right? All the things. So you have this vision that allows you to endure even some of the taunts. You don't give in. You don't just go, no. okay, then I'm just going to not per- perform. You keep going. And like, where does that take you as you kind of are finishing up high school? Yes. So I, I say to people, you know, um, my Claire Huxtable plan was working out. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I... I, I did well in school. I graduated as the first black valedictorian of my high school. Come on. And Come because on. of that, yeah. They, That's they clear put, Huxtable flexing right there. <laughs> <laughs> they put me on the front page of the local paper. You know, then I got all these scholarships, went to college, and I'm just doing well. Got a got a plum job working at Okay, Goldman. hold on, hold on, hold on. I mean, yes. you just, I, I, we can't just skip over being on the front page. <laughs> Of the newspaper as a valedictorian. Like, we can't just act like you didn't just say that. So, what was that like? What were, you know, what was that moment? Come on, walk us in there. Most of us haven't experienced that. I, you know, so yeah, tell us about that. Oh, man. So, because I had this sense that, you know, I'm a black female and I have got to work hard to make it in life, it's the only way. I'm not fully accepted by white people, not fully accepted by black people. I want to become like Claire Huxtable. I basically need to, you know, be perfect. I have to succeed, you know, mm. no matter what, right? And so I poured myself into academics and I am grateful, uh, so grateful that, you know, I, I was blessed with success to the extent, you know, that I'm graduating first in my class, at first black valedictorian in my class and overcoming all these obstacles, including getting scholarships for school. At the same time, I say it also messed me up because from a young age, I've carried this idea that I have to strive for perfection. If I am not meeting that standard, and of course, nobody can, but if I'm not mm. meeting that standard, you know, it, I'm not worthy of life. Mm. It's a kind of perfectionism that I've carried with me in part due to the racial, you know, dynamics that came with that, that has caused a lot of pain, you mm. know, to me and in my relationships over time. So mixed blessing. <laughs> yeah. And, and I, I appreciate you sharing that because the other part that I think is probably worth noting, at least this is what happened in my experience. And, and I think is yours as well, is that the phase when it's the Oreo or, oh, you're being white and it's a, and it's a negative thing. By the time you get to like junior and senior year in high school, that kind of changes because people yes. are really trying to figure out what to do in their life. And often the same people that was two years ago clowning you are now asking for your help because they need your leg up. Was that your experience too? Yes. Can I tell you one of the most unforgettable experiences of my life? There was one black girl in particular absolutely terrorized me, Russell. Mm. She terrorized me. I literally would wake up in the morning, not want to go to school, terrorized with mm. fear by this girl. Well, that was middle school. Uh, f- fast forward all the way to, you know, I'm giving my valedictorian speech. She approaches me afterward and said, that was an amazing speech, Michelle. Mm. Wow. Thank you. You inspired me. And I'm thinking, what happened? <laughs> that this this girl is yes but it did change right yeah it did change for the better but i was still a little bit broken yeah, on the it's inside. Like, i'm still messed up like that's yeah. nice that you you caught up but <laughs> but I, I, you know can i get healed <laughs> yes oh the rest of my life was that healing story. yeah okay so i gotta ask because i mean immigrant yeah background parent on one side you know What were your parents' experience of- Oh, my gosh. (laughs) They must have been over the moon. They were. You know, um, it was a journey. So my parents enrolled in college. They didn't finish college. Mm. My understanding is that I would be the first one Mm. to 
finish college. Okay. Okay. Um, in our in our families, so it was strange because. I remember when I was a teenager, I had heard a lot of my white friends talking about the money their parents had saved for college and their planning. And I'm like, so uh, yeah, what if you guys saved for me for college? And it was like blank stares, blank stares. They said, um, so we did not really mm-hmm. think you were going to be doing this well. <laughs> we didn't really mm-hmm. uh, save for college. So you're going to have to get some scholarships. Mm-hmm. Which again reinforced, oh my gosh, I have to, I better do really well, mm, you know, mm. in order to make it in, in life. They were happy for me, but they also didn't know what to do with me. And that's, yeah. So, cause it's like a new reality now. <laughs> yes, it's like, okay, yes. what is this? Okay. So what happens next? So I, I go to NYU. And as I said, my Claire Huxtable plan is working just fine. I'm loving life. I'm studying business. I'm hoping to be an entrepreneur one day, executive. And uh, I got a plum job at the end working at Goldman Sachs as an investment banker. Okay. Just – I'm going to need you – it may feel uncomfortable, but for those who are not familiar, you just got to humble brag. You just got to do it just to give people – when you say a plum job, Goldman Sachs – if one were to be interested in the financial field, especially, you know, at the time yeah. that you were, what would be the number one place that they would want to go to work? Oh, without a doubt, Goldman Sachs. Okay. And it has been that way for a long time, as long as I can remember. I mean, it is basically the top investment bank in the world dealing with the wealthiest people and corporations worldwide. Right. It's like they're so wealthy, but the culture is we don't flaunt it, mm. you know? And so it was understated. Mm-hmm. And the building at that time didn't even have its name like on the front. It mm. was like, if you don't know who we are, you don't need to know. Wow. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's next level. <laughs> that's next level. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so you're you're living the dream at this point. I am one hundred percent living the dream. I as a black female, right? And it's like, okay, next on the agenda is just to get my townhouse in Brooklyn, like the like Claire Huxtable. <laughs> just r- rattling down the Claire Huxtable. Plan. Find my doctor husband, right? <laughs> yeah, and so it was going according to plan, but God interrupted it as He typically tends to do. Okay. And how did he interrupt your plan? (laughs) Okay. A couple different ways. You know, one thing that happened when I was working at Goldman Sachs, I actually volunteered for junior achievement, went to teach at an inner city school one day. And I remember on the subway ride down uh, to this school, it's a predominantly black and brown area. And I remember thinking, oh, all these kids need is a little inspiration. (laughs) They need a little Claire Huxtable style inspiration. And, you know, that's what I'm prepared to give them. And so I get to the school and, Russell, I felt like I was in a different country. I I had left the United States. I had entered into a developing nation. The state of the school and the facilities, it was dark. It was crowded. The classroom, there were kids like sitting in the hallway, like trying to listen to me. It was loud. It was, I could not believe I was still in the United States of America. And Mm. I thought to myself, oh my gosh, if I had grown up in a school like this, would I be where I am today? Mm. You know, likely not. And so God, in little ways, through experiences like that of proximity, started to open my eyes to, you know, your life has turned out the way it has, not fully because you worked hard. There are other dynamics involved. So that's one thing. Mm. The really big thing that happened was 9-11. So, 9-11 for me, you know, that happened while I was working at Goldman Sachs and it changed me forever. It's also part of how I actually went into ministry. Essentially, you know, all of August 2001, I was doing my training for Goldman Sachs at the top of the World Trade Center. Mm. Our training was on the top floor. So if, you know, the terrorists had come in August, I would not be here with you today. But, you know, they came in September. I was just getting started in my new job at work, a couple blocks down. And all of a sudden, I'm sitting at my desk and I remember seeing papers falling from the sky, like a Xerox machine blew up or something. I'm mm. thinking, what, what is that? The skies had turned dark gray, even black. It was like nighttime in the middle mm. of the day, which meant that 
the air was completely choked up with smoke and toxic yeah. things. Yeah. Right. So we were at first advised, I think probably most people were first advised, stay inside, mm. stay inside. Don't go outside. We don't know what's out there. We don't know what you could be breathing in. Mm. You know, for decades afterward, I would receive follow up surveys about my health and, you know, mm. it relates to what people were breathing in that day. And so we were told to stay. So we stayed, I don't know, maybe an hour or two uh, when the air finally cleared. Pretty sure there were no more planes coming. And then we're given masks and told to evacuate. Mm. And just go. How did you decide where to go? Oh, my gosh. Oh, everything. Oh, everything was shut down. Obviously, the subways were shut down. The buses were shut down. Every building was shut down. Everybody's just trying to get home. So you decide, okay, I'm going to get home. (laughs) And you live in Lower Manhattan or you're working in Lower Manhattan. And you live where? Brooklyn. Okay. So... That means that's a few miles. There least. is no way to get home. That that's day miles. Except like you got to walk. walk over the Brooklyn Bridge to yeah. get home. You got to walk through the tunnels to get to New Jersey. To, you know, you got to just walk. There's nothing moving. And and as you're wa- making that walk, you're like reflecting on life and its meaning and what. Yeah, my thousands of people just lost their lives. You wow. know, they're at work. They're like getting their morning coffee. Mm. And suddenly they're trying to decide if they want to stay in the flames and burn alive or jump. I mean, this is, mm-hmm. I could not get over that, right? Like the suddenness of it. And mm. like, okay, what if that was me right. last month? Mm. And, you know, am I ready? Mm. Am I ready to meet God? And I knew the Lord. So in that sense, yes. But in another sense, I knew that I had been driven by so much of the insecurity and fear and like self-loathing and all of these reasons had led me to this particular career and like what I was doing with my life. I didn't even like the job after I'd been doing it for a while. Mm-hmm. And the Lord was like, I want to heal you and I want to bring you into the calling that I have for you. Okay. So that's quite the <laughs> message to hear on your way to back to Brooklyn. Yeah. What do you do next? So I had signed a two-year contract, and I wanted to be faithful to that. And so, you know, as soon as everything opened up again, which wasn't for a week or two, went back to work and was faithful to fulfill, you know, uh, that that immediate obligation. But the entire time, I was also kind of renewing my relationship with the Lord and seeking healing, seeking to hear Him in a fresh way. If I'm not defined by this kind of internalized racism, how am I defined? Who am I? And what does the Lord have for me? So it took a lot of time to hear uh, the Lord you know, clearly on that. But I have been on a healing journey ever since. When we come back, Michelle will share about a conversation she had with a fellow Black minister that challenged her to the core of her identity and radically changed how she approached discipleship. That's coming next on Where You're From. This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and Certificate Programs. Begin your Master's or Certificate Program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu admit. What's up, where you're from, listeners? You like free stuff, right? Well, check this out to hear how you can get my favorite set of earphones, Power Beats Pro. I use these when I work out, cook, and when I'm listening to my favorite podcasts, like where you're from. How can you enter to win the giveaway? Simply fill out our brief survey by clicking on the link in the show notes. Once you do that, you're entered to win. It's just that simple. So won't you do it right now? You'll have until November 7th, the day of the last episode of season five to enter. Thanks for listening to where you're from. Peace, y'all. Hey, y'all, before we get back to our conversation with Michelle Sanchez, I wanted to share a quick teaser from our next episode with Vince Bantu. This is where you're from. Because I grew up in a white church, I did not have any context for black Christians. I knew black people and I identified as a black person, but nobody in my neighborhood went to church. Nobody in my family on that side or either side really went to church. So it wasn't like I thought all white people were Christians, but I felt subconsciously that all Christians were white. 
because that was my little microcosm world. Now, let's get back to our conversation with Michelle Sanchez on where you're from. Okay, and one of the things that if anyone who spends five minutes with you will learn is that discipleship is a passion. Yes. How does that moment and that realization, I'm more than just what I can prove to people my worth, how does that turn into a passion for discipleship? I think one of the things that the Lord helped me to see over time is that I love, I love, I love the church. I love um, seeing people encounter the Lord. I love seeing them go deeper with Him. These are things I've always loved, you know, and and He helped me to see actually. I have a I have a call on your life, you know, to engage in those ways. I had never thought about it because you don't make money like that. Plus I'm oh. female. Don't even get me started. What does that mean to be a woman in ministry? You know, I had just never seriously considered these things, but he helped me to see that the love that I had for helping people to meet Jesus for the first time and then to follow him in beautiful, profound, life-changing ways, that was the call in my life. And that's discipleship. That though that is what discipleship is all about. Mm, mm. Okay, so you are now getting in touch with this deeper sense of what it means to know Jesus, what it means to love Him and help other people know Him. So, where does that lead you? So, toward the end of my time at Goldman Sachs, the Lord did this incredible work um, in my life where a good friend that I had been sharing the gospel with for many years miraculously came to Christ. Like she had a vision of Jesus and miraculously gave her life to Christ. It was She was an international student. And then, you know, one of the conversations I had as I was thinking about transitioning, like what should I do with my life? I connected with Crew, you know, the, the ministry I'd been involved with in college, formerly Campus Crusade for Christ. And I just said, hey, I just am curious what you all have going on now. And they said, you know, we're really eager to start a ministry to international students at NYU. They had no idea of my, my recent <laughs> experience. Okay. But we really, we have, we have somebody who's coming, brand new staff. They're going to start the ministry at Columbia, but we were praying for somebody to do international ministry at NYU. And I, it had my name on it. It was a lightning strike. I knew this is what mm-hmm. I'm supposed to do. And so, um, so I took the leap and I said, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll do that. I committed at first for just a year. And then it was another year. And now all these decades later, I'm still in ministry, right? But the Lord used all of the skills that I had developed in business school, like the entrepreneurial skills and the management, you know, people and all of these things. He mm-hmm. used it. He used it just in ministry. Um, not, not what I expected. Now, see, you happen to be talking to somebody who knows a little something <laughs> about crew and missionary yeah, okay. journey. So so I need to pull on a thread here that <laughs> that's underneath the surface because you just yeah. said that you went from working on Wall Street at Goldman and Sachs to serving in a missionary organization, which means how did you get that salary? Yes. So if you're working for crew, uh, you need to raise your own salary. You need to raise your own support. So my friend, I went from making money to asking people for money. And this is the, this is quite the 180. There were lots of people that thought I was crazy. This is what I'm thinking. <laughs> like that, that, that's what like when I'm like wait a minute, hold on. Cuz I raised support for 20 years with Chris. So I know how this works. Like I'm just trying to picture somebody that knew you yeah. as working at Goldman Sachs and then having a support appointment where you sit down with them and invite them say, hey, yeah, I'm leaving Goldman Sachs so that I can do ministry on college campuses with international students. Can you give monthly? Like they, they must have looked at you like, have you lost your mind? Absolutely. Yes. I, I would say most people. Looked at me that way. Okay. Uh, so, I, I mean, I had even, I had some extreme reactions. I had one family friend, lifelong mentor. All her hopes and dreams were that I would be this successful Claire Huxtable type, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And um, when I went this direction, she basically stopped talking to me. You know, she, wow. she just could not understand how I would give up so much, 
you know, in the eyes of the world to quote unquote, asking people for money, right? So at some point you have to, you know, some of that reflects on yourself. Yeah. Like at some point the boomerang has to go, well, what is the answer to that question? <laughs> <laughs> How did you answer that question yourself? Let me just say, um, you know, there really are moments in life where it is very clear that God is speaking, mm-hmm. that it was clear to me that I was to move into ministry. So it didn't okay. really even feel, you know, again, like a burning bush moment. I, I pushed back on it a little bit, just like Moses did. Yeah. <laughs> but then the Lord was like, you know, I got you. And this mm-hmm. is exactly what I want you to do. And by the way, where did I put you? I put you at Goldman Sachs. Here's what I did. I found all of the Christians that I could find mm. at Goldman Sachs, okay? I said, when I found one, I said, do you know anybody else? Mm. I asked them all for support and was funded within three months. Wow. Which, again, y'all, just <laughs> for those that, that don't know, that is re- that's very fast. <laughs> that, that's very fast. But that is that is a, a, a blessing of being able to work there. Okay, so you're yeah. you're you're at NYU now. You're doing this international ministry. So how does that go? What does that do in your heart? Oh man, it really. I, I was just set free. Hmm. You know, <laughs> in in little ways like. You know, when I was at when I was at Goldman, I had to stare at numbers all day long, spreadsheets and numbers. I'm not a numbers person. I don't even like numbers. <laughs> you know, I don't know what I was doing there. I love words. Mm-hmm. I love people. I love culture. I love, you know, pioneering things with others. And I got to do all of that and, you know, see people flourish um, in meeting Jesus mm. and and following him, seeing him work miraculous wonders in the lives of people. Mm. And I just felt like the Lord was like, you know, you're free. You you are not being controlled at your center anymore by Mm. worldly expectations or demands. You are doing what I've crafted you to do, Mm. really. And again, this is not about, you know, oh, I'm in ministry versus I'm not in ministry. That's not, that's not really... It was more about the the kind of work I was doing every day that I felt like the Lord had just liberated me, you know, to do what brought me the most joy. That's such a word. So so you're there and is is that where some of the development and the passion or the clarity about discipleship emerges? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I was seeing many people uh, accept Christ for the first time, but then I realized I was unclear really about how to help them grow, mm-hmm. really help them to flourish in faith. And so that's what I focused on when I went to seminary. And many of my first years in ministry after seminary, uh, that's when I entered the Evangelical Covenant Church, and I started out my ministry in a discipleship focus. And so that's how I got to uh, to that place. Okay. So why wasn't it enough just to see someone come to faith? Like in your actual experience, what, what was missing that made you go, I got to lean into this discipleship thing? Well, first, let me say my favorite thing still is seeing people come to Christ. Right. That piece of, yeah. you know, the moving from death to life, I'll never get over that. But I also remember feeling surprised when like, oh, you know, af- after they come to Jesus and, uh, you know, the party, we had the party, like, oh, you're still here and you still have issues and you don't know how to handle them and I don't know what to do. I mm. I need to focus on the next person that needs Jesus, mm. <laughs> right? Mm. Like, I just was like, wow, this is... It's just beginning. Of course, we know that, you know, it's good Christian people. You're coming to Jesus just the beginning, but he doesn't invite us to make converts. He invites us to make disciples Mm. who can in turn eventually grow and make more disciples. And so I just realized, oh my gosh, I know a lot about leading people to Jesus, but not growing and flourishing in him. And then, oh, here's the other thing. I realized too, part of it was that I myself, you know, wasn't quite as discipled as I would hope. Uh And I, I, I got to yeah. ask, he's like, like <laughs> what helped you realize that? I think it, you know, mostly was just my my lack of being able to answer mm. their questions. Got it. Some of their questions, not all, sure, right? Sure, right? But many of their questions. Mm. Like, you know, I have this thing I'm constantly struggling with and I'm not sure how to get over it. Like, how do you break, mm. you know, really um, bad habits that, you know, you're, you're struggling with or – Help me understand, you know, some of these harder questions of the faith. And I, I just realized I, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I don't, 
I don't know. Or how do I heal? Right. And mm. I was still on my own healing journey. How do I really mm. identify areas that I need healing and then heal from them? And I was like, wow, the Lord, I guess the Lord showed me, I have so much more for you mm. in the journey of discipleship. And then therefore, after that, you can give that to others. And that's what led you to go to seminary. Yeah. Okay. Yes. So you go there. Do you get some of those questions answered? So seminary, for the most part, is a very heady place. <laughs> right. But yeah, I, I sought out as much as I could mentorship and um, kind of holistic uh, approach to discipleship. One of the things that I uh, learned about in seminary and dove into is something called spiritual direction, spiritual direction. And essentially, it's an ancient Christian practice of helping one another, helping another person to find and follow God. Mm. And it really focuses on helping people to see God in their everyday life circumstances, mm -hmm. hear his voice, and then take steps, practical steps to follow him. And I realized that, oh, that's that's basically what the heart of discipleship is all about. Mm. And so in addition to the head knowledge, you know, and learning more of the Bible and all of that, mm -hmm. I dove into spiritual direction. I became a trained spiritual director over time and really helping people to follow God in their everyday life and circumstance. Mm. Okay. So that sounds all great. This sounds very <laughs> like spiritual and wholesome but then there's this other thing that still is lurking in the background that you've talked about. You this racial trauma, this story of your past, and all of that does does that just kind of dissipate and just get cleared up because oh okay I've developed some spiritual discipline practices so I'm good now. Oh no, my goodness! Actually, seminary was the first time that I came face to face with my um, toxic perfectionism. Ooh. That's how I would put that. Okay. My toxic perfectionism. I'm uh, newly married, okay? And I'm holding myself and others, including my husband, to unattainable standards, like in, in many parts of life. I am once again, you know, killing myself uh, for my academics because – it's got to be perfect. It's got to be perfect. Mm. Rasul, I'll tell you. So I graduated as valedictorian again from seminary. <laughs> Yo, just to show it wasn't a fluke the first time. Wow. I mean, maybe I have some smarts, but mostly I want you to understand this was driven by a kind of, I have to be perfect. Mm. So I came face to face with my perfectionism there. I pursued counseling for that. But it was only slowly and in time that I started to make a connection between my kind of racial history and my toxic perfectionism. And, you know, once I was able to make that connection, this is happening over years, but once I made it, the Lord helped me to see I am looking for you to be free in so many ways, not not even just choice of career, because now I'm in seminary, eventually mm. I'm in ministry, mm. but I still have this like desperate need to be perfect and to demand others to be perfect. And I'm it's coming out in criticism and judgmentalism and harshness and all of these things. I mean, I'm painting a pretty scary picture of myself. I promise you I'm not like this <laughs> all the time. But but at my worst, yes. And and let me tell you, you stepping on my toes too, because, really? and I'm I'm serious. Like the messages that we're given as a young person, that from bullying or from people essentially saying you're not enough, that, that pours itself out in different ways as you get older. And I think I can relate to one of the ways that it has impacted me is the performance. I'm gonna show you that. That's right. I'm more than what you thought or to try to get that sense of affirmation and that mix with like Jesus talk and Bible and ministry can become really toxic really fast. Okay. So you talk about in your book, a particular moment where you kind of collide with this sense of perfectionism at a, at a meeting. That happens after, you know, I don't know if the, I don't want to fast forward yeah. too much, but it seems appropriate to bring it up now. Yes. So 
So fast forwarding, I served at a local church after seminary, loved it, did well. The church was doing well. And then I also was doing well at the church. Eventually, I was asked to lead discipleship and evangelism for the entire evangelical covenant denomination. And how many churches are we talking about <laughs> in this network, this denomination? Yeah, it's around 900 churches throughout North America. Wow. And as far as I understand, I was the youngest, you know, executive ever been hired mm. for a role like this. Mm. I never thought I would get it. And so anyway, so I'm called to this incredible, incredible position. But yet again, what kicks in is this insecurity. Like, okay, they're taking a chance on me, mm. you know, young black female. I, I cannot fail. I must not fail, right? And so I'm, I'm doing everything I can to do well. And the Lord was with me. The Lord was with me. Um, but I did have this pivotal moment at my first performance review. And I tell this story, uh, in the book. Um, I'm having my first performance review and I'm completely fixated on how did I perform, right? And what, what, where did I, you know, succeed, but also where did I not measure up? And my boss at the time, um, older white male, and he's going over the, the year with me. And basically, you know, it's all good, but I'm waiting, you know, for the other shoe to drop. And finally, he gets to the constructive feedback mode. And he says, you know, Michelle, here's something I'm trying to figure out. So it seems to me that the white people in our movement absolutely adore you. But some of the black people are struggling with you. Do you have any idea why that might be? Wow. <laughs> what a question. <laughs> I became a puddle. Right there. I just, oh, right there. I, I kind of lost it. I began to cry, you know, profusely. And he's just staring at me, not understanding what is going on. But it was like all of the bullies I had had in my life, mm -hmm. you know, all of the, like, the Oreo cookie. Like, here I am at, at, like, the epitome of having, you know, succeeded and still mm – -hmm. You know, I'm getting, you know, kind of bullied uh, again because mm. I don't fit perfectly into white. I don't fit perfectly into black. And here I am again at this place. So tears and tears and tears, right? All the way home, I'm crying. You know, after the review is over, I'm crying and crying. But I remember saying to him, you know, I really don't know what is going on exactly. Would you be willing to ask one of these, you know, black leaders to connect with me? And to give me some feedback. Because here, you know, I had a little hope. We're talking about Christian people here. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so I'm hoping, you know, if I ask um, for feedback, that maybe I'll get it, right? And so he said, well, I, I don't know uh, if they'll be willing to, but I'll, I'll reach out. I am so grateful that at least one person did respond. And kind of an elder statesman, a black person, black, black man in our movement, pastor, and he reached out to me and offered to go out to have a meal together. And so, you know, I am so nervous about this. Mm. I am just thinking, oh, my gosh, it's going to be just like when I was a little girl and mm. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what to expect, right? But I, I went with um, open heart, open mind. So we go and essentially we start sharing each other's stories. Mm. And in the process, he apologized to me. And I cannot tell you how meaningful that was. But he said, you know, Michelle, I have been judging you from afar because I haven't understood why you haven't been doing more for the cause of, you know, racial justice and racial equity. I haven't understood why you haven't used your voice for that. But I also, you know, in hearing your story, realize it's very different from mine. Mm. You know, you have not, you simply have not had many of the same experiences mm. that I have had. So I'm asking you, in a sense, to represent something that you're not familiar with. Wow. And I'm sorry. And, you know, it meant so much to hear him say that. And I, I said, I would love to use my voice, you know, to make a difference. But I, there's a lot of things I am ignorant to. Mm. Because of the complexity of race today, I have been an exception to the rule. There is still a rule. I am now understanding and learning mm. that there is still inequity. I had experienced it in tiny ways, like in that little visit to, you know, the inner city school. Right. 
but not in big comprehensive ways. Right. And he just wanted me to see, you know, you're standing on the shoulders of so many people, mm. you know, who have enabled you to be in this position. And what are you going to do to give back? Wow. It changed my life. Mm. That must have been such uh, I mean, where, how do you what do you remember about walking uh, out of that meeting? It was so healing to hear an apology like that mm. and and someone inviting me in, you know, versus pushing me out, right? And a feeling of excitement mm. because I want to build beloved community as I talk about in my book. Like I want to be a part of the solution. If there's a problem, I want to see it. I want to be able to contribute to fixing it. And I realized, wow, there's so much I don't know. I'm excited to learn about it. I'm excited to use this platform that God has given me. And so, yeah, kind of healing and, and excitement about what the future could hold. You, you write about this experience. That day I recognized the voice of Christ calling me to grow as a color courageous disciple. Yes. Same discipleship, new emphasis. Yes. I talk about moving from colorblind to color courageous. And it's a journey that I think everybody has to take, whether you're a white person, person of color, you know, it's a journey I had to take as a black woman from under, from moving from, okay, when I, when I'm talking about colorblind discipleship, it's just doing our discipleship with absolutely no reference to race, like not even understanding that there's a connection between our a race and ethnicity in ourselves and in the world and discipleship. Where the reality mm. is, the Bible is full of references to ethnicity, to injustices related to ethnicity, the need to heal and to mend these things. And so it's all over uh, the Word of God, and it's a vital need in our world today, but we don't always see it. In part, I'm talking to people from my generation. Post-civil rights, it's like, oh, we've done this. We can all be the Cosby show. It's fine. You know, it's going to be great. Just work hard. Mm -hmm. And I think what's happened, you know, in this George Floyd kind of new place uh, generation that we're at is something like, yeah, we've made some progress, but there's still a lot of progress to make. We have seen many exceptions to the rule at this point. Thank God. We have our Barack Obama and Oprah Winfrey and Michael Jordan. Yeah, we, we've got all of that, but we still right. have massive racial inequality that we somehow have to address. And so for me, moving from colorblind, not making any connections between race and following mm. the Lord, I realized, no, these are deeply connected. Our Lord wants full healing mm. for the whole world, shalom, justice, and for disciples to be a mm. part of that. So I want to help to wake people up to that reality. Sounds nice. But I, uh, um, for those who might not be ultimately convinced, because I, I, I got to say, as someone who grew up hearing a lot about discipleship in my Christian journey mm -hmm. and experience, the claim that somehow one's understanding of what it means to be disciple is not complete without a understanding in our context of, of race, of, of the reality of color, is, is a pretty radical statement for, for those that may have been formed spiritually in places where this is never talked about, right? You said something I thought was pretty radical, that you have already been racially discipled. Yes. How have we... So, you're, you're not... You're not you, mm -hmm. say, you say we're not starting from a blank slate. And you're saying, okay, we got to pour some race <laughs> onto nothing that, you know, onto something. You're saying that this is actually trying to undo what has been done. Explain that. How have we been racially discipled already? So we are, you know, living our lives in a broken and fallen world. Hmm. It was not so at the beginning. The Lord created difference within us, ethnicity, as a gift as a source of joy and uh, enrichment for humanity, really, mm. and to bring glory to himself. But the reality is that in a fallen world, things that were meant you know, uh, for good can become twisted. So our differences in a broken world tend to lead to disparities. They lead to groups wanting to have power over other groups or exploit them for different purposes. And this is what we have seen. This is the long kind of sad story of the human race. But not, not only do we have individuals, 
you know, kind of oppressing or hurting other individuals, but we have entire groups oppressing or hurting other groups. It seems a little bit more like the norm, unfortunately, than not. It's not always about black and white. You could see it in many different places and cultures, whether it's arguments between tribes or between different ethnic groups. So in a broken world, uh, it, groups uh, are constantly seeking to overpower other groups. And so we have to resist that uh, in the name of Jesus. Now, let's talk about where we see this in the Bible, because you give a lot of different examples. But one of the ones that I found to be pretty impactful was Acts chapter six. One of the things that I love about what we see going on in the church in Acts chapter six is this. This is a people filled with the Holy Spirit. In fact, they are freshly filled with the Holy I mean, Spirit. It's, it's, yes. <laughs> the breeze came through and everything. They, <laughs> yeah, like literally. Uh, and Pentecost, you know, Pentecost has just happened. Right, right. And that in and of itself, right, is this like celebration essentially yeah. of all of the diverse peoples and languages. And it's like kumbaya, totally kumbaya, yes. right? That's, that's Acts chapter two. Well, by chapter six. Don't take uh, long. <laughs> yes. We are yet again experiencing some kind of ethnic inequality going on among the people of God. So we have, we have the church and essentially the, uh, the Hebraic versus the non-Hebraic Jews were in a struggle with one another. And, and just what's Hebraic versus non-Hebraic? Essentially, the folks who were coming from a Jewish background mm -hmm. versus the ones who were more shaped by the Greek background. Right. Okay, uh, we're starting to have some tensions with one another. Right. So these would be people that they could see, you could see the difference both in terms of how they may be dressed because, you know, you had your kind of country folk from, you know, Galilee or Jerusalem that were locals. And then you had those who weren't, who were from the, the, the diaspora, so to speak. Yes. And, which meant that they looked different in terms of their complexion, maybe their clothes, how they spoke. So there were clear differences that were going on between these two different groups, but they were part yes. of the same faith community in worshiping yes. in Jerusalem. Okay, got it. Yes, 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 yes. They were same in some ways, but also different in other ways. And that difference created a disparity, not an intentional one. Mm. And here's the thing. So it says that the one group was being overlooked mm. in the distribution of food. Mm -hmm. And so essentially, they were being discriminated against and brought this to the attention of the whole church. And in a sense, again, uh, I love that word overlooked yeah. because it, it signifies that this discriminatory behavior based on difference was not intentional. Mm. It was not intentional. Nevertheless, uh, in a fallen and broken world, it was happening. Mm. And so they didn't deny it. I love that. They didn't say, what, why are you bringing attention to race? Why, why are you causing division? You know, or whatever. Right, right, right. They, 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 just said, okay, wow, okay, let's let's see what we can do to address this disparity that we did not intend. And uh, interestingly, they raised up people then from the discriminated group to actually lead in, in helping us solve uh, this problem. And the result we see in Acts 6, 7, so the word of God spread, the number yes. of disciples in Jer Jerusalem increased rapidly. Right. Yes. I love that yeah. because it points out that basically this ethnic conflict was causing the church to get stuck. Like it actually yeah. caused it to slow in its effectiveness in disciple making. Mm -hmm. And so they had to deal with it. And when they mm -hmm. did, yeah, the word of God increased rapidly. The number of disciples multiplied. Mm -hmm. And so we see that the dismantling of this ethnic inequality led to the church growing. So, okay. So we see that in the Bible. How do we see that in our American culture in moments that we can even look to our more recent past, right? Not just from 2000 years ago, but maybe 50 years ago, help us yeah. to see about that. So when we think about racial injustice in America, I mean, oh my gosh, it's long, it's complicated, and there's many different kind of phases and parts of it. For a very long time in America, you know, really hundreds of years, most of our history, the, the racism that exists, the racial injustice that exists was very blatant, mm -hmm. really in your face, you know, slavery first, and then, you know, baked into law, like Jim Crow segregation. Right. 
So uh, there's a lot I could say about that kind of blatant approach to racism um, that we saw. But we're actually, I would say, in a different place now. You know, we're in a unique place because I would say that many Christians, you know, today of any race, but it's certainly white Christians for the most part would say, I don't want to be racist. I don't want to uphold any kind of inequality. I want for all people, you know, to experience all that life has, all that God has for them. Mm. Now, listen, I know there's some exceptions to that. Sure. But for the most part, I think people are like, we don't love that blatant, outright racist stuff. We want to figure out how we can all flourish together. So what feels uh, similar to me now, and, and, and I think people need an awakening. By the way, people of all races need to have an awakening to the ways in which we have inequity continuing even unintentionally, Mm. right? Like it may not be that it's baked into the law or the rules or the ways that we do things, Mm -hmm. but nevertheless, we are experiencing inequality. We are experiencing disparity. Right. And we need to see it first, just like in Acts chapter six, Mm. you know, the leaders did not see, they just didn't see that they had overlooked and it needed to be brought to their attention. They needed to be woken up. There is a, there's still a problem here. You know, yes, we're together, but there's still some inequalities. Can we, you know, fix this together? Can we do that? And I feel like that's the kind of moment we're in now. Mm. And, and I kept saying people of all races because I'm, I'm sharing my own story. Yeah. I had made it very far in life and could have just gone on without looking back, really. But but I too had to be awakened to the fact there's still some issues here. And, you know, we can all be part of the solution. That's so good because, you know, and again, one of the misnomers is that only people who are from the majority culture are white can have internalized racism or can have a, you know, need to be discipled into a color courageous mentality. But one of the things you talk about very honestly in your story is how you needed that deeper understanding of who God called you to be. That was even motivating you in ways that on the outside, people could have celebrated. Oh, you're the first black person, you know, you're in the newspaper, first black person to be the father. But meanwhile, Underneath, there are unformed or even deformed ways yes. in which your what your motivations and, and are being driven by things that were kind of these racialized ways of of being, right? So, because I'm being called Oreo now, I have to show people my worth. But you don't leave us there. Um, but, you know, there is this sense of hope that you talk about with the beloved community. What is the beloved community? Beloved community is a phrase popularized by Martin Luther King. It's actually how I believe he would define his true dream, not just, you know, racial equality or justice. Those, yes, yes, those things. But really, uh, a beloved community is a diverse community that is grounded in God's love. Mm. King was a pastor first. He wanted to see people uh, both in a diverse community and an, an equal community but one in which people are willing to lay down their lives for one another in the very love that God has shown to us. Mm. And he called that beloved community. Mm. And so, yes, I think it is a beautiful way to just explain essentially the kingdom of God and and what God wants for us when it comes to diversity and community. Well, one last quote I'm going to ask you about, because I just thought that this was such a deep statement that I think reflects all the different facets of the diamond that you refer to. Since racism is a deeply embodied reality, color courageous disciples would do well to pursue deeply embodied spiritual practices. Unpack that. What does that mean? You know, when it comes to race and ethnicity, I mean, honestly, look, I could say this about many parts of our discipleship, but When it comes to race and ethnicity, these are embodied concepts. Mm. These are embodied ideas. So in order to transform or to to have an awakening, what I have seen is it often involves some kind of real life experience with real life people 
in actual geographic places so that we can, we can see, we can experience, we can understand whether in relationship or just through visiting a historical, you know, place in reality that can wake us up. You know, I think in our head, we might understand a concept, but it's completely different to experience mm. that same concept um, in relationship or in a place of historical significance. So I know that those moments have been pivotal for me to mm. transform mm. in this area. And so the idea of embodied uh, practices, I think, is vital, especially when it comes to race and ethnicity. And you give us a lot of them, you know, yes. from the pilgrimage aspect, fasting for real. Uh, which <laughs> yes. I love. Yes. Yeah, like, and then and you also wrote a, a a version of this, or wrote a children's book. And what's yeah. it called? And then tell us a little bit about it. So, um, so this book is actually a series of books. So it's Color Courageous Discipleship for Adults. There's Color Courageous Student Edition. Okay, and so that's for like teenagers, youth groups, and then there is a picture book for kids. That one is called God's Beloved Community. Mm. Why all three? Well, in my role uh, leading discipleship for the covenant, I essentially was serving all ages, and I realized if we want to see things change, we got to hit like the whole family at once, the whole church at once. So this allows us to get there. The picture book in particular is what I think is the most important message of all three of the books, and that is this concept of what God wants for us. He wants to see us in beloved community. Most kids have heard of Martin Luther King. They know he had a dream, uh, but they don't know that King's dream was actually this idea of beloved community. And his descendants at the King Center continue to say that. The eternal flame that burns at the King Center in Atlanta represents beloved community. In the plaque next to it, it says that. So I wanted to introduce kids to the concept of beloved community mm. as King's dream, but more importantly, as God's dream for us to love one another sacrificially in diverse community. That is what God has always been about and what He wants for us. This is where you're from. I'm Rasul Berry. And remember, it's not just about where you're at. It's also about where you're from. This show was produced by Ryan Clevenger, Mary Jo Clark, and Jay Gussman, and was engineered by Kevin Burgess. Also want to thank Orshika and Seamus for their help in supporting and promoting where you're from. Thanks, y'all. Where You're From is part of the Voices Collection from Our Daily Bread Ministries.